That's Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is God's word. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for this day that you have given to us. Lord, we thank you for this season, the season of Advent or a season of expectation as we look forward to celebrating the coming of our Savior, Jesus Christ. What a wonderful season. What an important season for the people of God to every year be reminded of the story of the gospel, the, sco- the story of your display of love toward your creation. Father, we pray that as we consider elements of this story again this morning, that our hearts would be once again stirred with affection and with love and with devotion, with worship for you, Lord, because you are worthy. Lord, we pray that you would speak to each of us and minister to us in the places in our hearts that we need to hear from you today. Lord, some of us today need nothing more than hope. Some of us need peace. Some of us need forgiveness. Some of us just need encouragement. Some of us need conviction and rebuke. Lord, whatever it is that each of us need in our own lives right now to more fully honor and glorify you, We pray that you would speak to us about that and minister to us. And by your spirit and in the power of the spirit that you would actually bring about those changes for our good and your glory. And we ask this now in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Good morning, family. Why don't you please grab a seat? Get comfortable and cozy. I won't make you stand up for at least 30 minutes. Great to worship with you this morning. What a joy to always come together on the Lord's Day and to sing songs of worship together, to fellowship with each other, to pray with one another, and of course, to study God's word together. This morning, uh, we are going to be considering, as Joe Rupnow pointed out, we're gonna be considering the theme of peace this week. If you were not here last week, we explained that during this year's season of Advent, which is the four Sundays leading up to Christmas, what we're doing is we're, we're considering in depth several of the themes of Advent. And so last week we talked together about the theme of hope. And this week it's peace. Next week we'll be talking about joy. And then finally talking together about love. And so we're going to consider this morning the theme of peace. I wonder if you know anyone who could, who could use a little peace in their life right now. Like anyone at all, do you know anyone who could use some peace in their life right now? Some of you are thinking, yeah, me. I'd love a little peace in my life right about now. You know, the world's a scary place. But the truth of the matter is it's always been that way. The world has always been a scary place. And so right now, instead of inner peace, many people are gripped by fear and anxiety, and worry. Instead of relational peace, 
Many are experiencing division and alienation and hostility from others. And instead of global peace, the world is still as factious and volatile as it has ever been. And so sometimes you feel like you just kind of want to scream out and say, is there any remedy for this? Is there any hope for true and lasting peace? Well, Advent is an annual reminder that the answer to that question is a resounding yes. Remember, Advent means arrival or coming. And so during the season of Advent, we celebrate the coming of Christ 2,000 years ago as a baby in a manger in the city of Bethlehem. And we look forward to the coming of Christ in the future at the end of the age. Now, when Christ came the first time, the, the announcement from the angel to the shepherds of Bethlehem, I'll reread it, even though Ben read it about as well as anybody could read it. This is Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 10. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, here's the key, peace among those with whom he is pleased. With the arrival of Jesus came the arrival of peace. And as we'll see from our text in Isaiah, this was prophesied about long before that first Christmas. Now, a little bit of context here in Isaiah chapter 9. The prophet Isaiah was ministering during a terrible, dark, and frightening period in his nation's history. The king of Judah, as we get to chapter 9, was a wicked king, an evil king, a man named Ahaz. And Ahaz led God's people astray. Instead of being a righteous leader and a godly leader, who guided the people of God into worship, he led God's people astray. One of the major mistakes that he made is that when there was threat of war from the north, from the kingdom of Israel and Damascus, instead of trusting in the Lord, which is what the prophets, the true prophets were saying he should do, instead of trusting in the Lord, what did he do? He decided that he would make a political alliance with the king of Assyria. And Assyria at this time was the rising regional superpower. And so he says, hey, I've got a, a, a military threat in the north. Forget about trusting in the Lord. I can fix this. I'll manage my own problems. And he tries to create an alliance with the king of Assyria. And the king of Assyria gladly obliges. Sure, I'll come help you out. And he comes down and he stomps all over Israel and he stomps all over Damascus. But then what he does is he turns to Ahaz, the king of Judah, and he makes him become a vassal state of Assyria and he imposes a heavy tribute on God's people. So the whole thing backfires and it blows up in his face and now he's basically enslaved to the king of Assyria. To make matters worse, under his leadership, Judah had backslid spiritually. This man, this king, supported the worship of false gods instead of the one true God. Things were so bad that, in fact, he even put a pagan altar in the courtyard of the temple, the most holy place. 
And so for the inhabitants of Judah, the world was literally caving in on them. And into this disaster, what God does is he sends a prophet, a man named Isaiah. And Isaiah speaks to Ahaz, but Ahaz refuses to listen. And he refuses to put his trust in the Lord. And so so Isaiah turns his attention to the people of Judah. And instead of offering a message of condemnation and judgment in chapter 9, he has a pronouncement of hope for God's people. And essentially he says this, look, even if Ahaz will not turn to the Lord, God is going to send a king to you. And this king is going to sit on David's throne and he's going to save us from our enemies and he's going to usher in total and complete peace. All you need to do is trust in him. Trust in the Lord and trust in his Messiah or his Savior. This future king is announced now in this famous passage of scripture that we read at Christmas time, Isaiah chapter 9, specifically in verses 6 and 7. And we learn here that he's a child unlike any other child who had ever been born or who would ever be born thereafter. He had titles like this, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Now, of course, parents tend to give little nicknames to their children that can be a little bit outlandish. It could be champ or all-star or superhero or princess or rock star, whatever you want to say to your kid. But clearly the names here in verse 6 are much more outlandish than that. These names are all titles that actually suggest deity. They're divine titles that are being bestowed on this baby who would be born. Not only that, but this child, we're told, would be the descendant promised to the great King David back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, where God promised David that one of his descendants would sit on his throne and his rule, listen, would not be 40 years, would not be 60 years, would not even be 100 years. This king that would come from the line of David would actually sit on David's throne forever. He'd be an eternal King, And we see here in verse 7 that that is this promised son in Isaiah. Look at verse 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. He says, On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. This is amazing. And Isaiah ends that with this statement. He says, The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. In other words, God Almighty, the creator of the heavens and the earth, with all of his holy zeal and passion and drive will make sure that this happens, that this child is sent into the world and that this child sits on David's throne and rules his kingdom forever. Now, of course, Isaiah himself, even as he's pinning these words in Isaiah chapter 9, he had no idea who this baby was going to be. The book of Isaiah was written some seven centuries before the coming of Jesus. So he had no idea. He just knew that God told him, this son will be born. This is going to happen. And God's people just need to trust in him if they want to experience peace. But for those of us on this side of the Christmas story, we know that this child would be none other than Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ. 
But for Isaiah, he must have sat in wonder regarding this incredible prophecy. Sitting there wondering to himself, who could this son be? Who could this king be that's going to come and have these titles and have this sort of a rule and a reign? Now, for our purposes this morning, notice that among the titles in verse 6 is this title, that this child would be known forevermore as the Prince of Peace. Now, you can imagine how wonderful that sounded to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. A king who, unlike Ahaz, could actually usher in lasting peace. Ahaz did everything in his power to secure peace for Judah. He reached out to the king of Assyria. He tried to use his political power, establish this alliance, and create some peace in Judah. And all that that did is it blew up in his own face. And the inhabitants of Judah, the the children of God, who were supposed to experience nothing but God's blessing and protection, have threats on every side. And they're filled and gripped with anxiety and worry and concern. And Isaiah says, listen, God hasn't forgotten you. Ahaz, yeah, he's a knucklehead. (laughs) Don't put your trust in him. God has not forgotten you. He's going to send you a real king. He's going to send you a prince of peace. And oh, they must have rejoiced to hear that. Now, this word peace is so important in the Bible. In fact, we've talked about it many times here at Apostles Church. The word peace is the Hebrew word shalom. And the word shalom in the Hebrew is such a rich biblical word. If you're a note taker, you can jot this down, but Well, let me say this first. Shalom includes the idea of absence of conflict, which is kind of how we generally use the idea of peace. When we talk about peace, we think about ending a conflict or tension between you and somebody else. And so peace means the absence of war. Peace means that you're no longer mad at me or we're not fighting anymore. And that's certainly included in the idea of shalom. But shalom is so much bigger than that, so much broader and more all-encompassing than that. This biblical Hebrew word shalom means completeness or wholeness. It's the idea of taking all of the incongruent parts and putting them back together in a way that they are now complete, they are whole, they are perfect. As it relates to human beings, the word shalom actually could be more better understood as human flourishing. It means life the way that God designed it to be lived. Life where everything is working out, where all things are firing on all eight cylinders, so to speak. Everything is the way it was designed. That's shalom. It's human flourishing in its fullness. Think of it this way. It's what our first parents, Adam and Eve, had in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve were experiencing prior to the fall, shalom. They were in right relationship with God. They were in right relationship with one another. They never had a fight. Imagine that married people. They never had a fight. Perfect harmony with one another. And not only that, they were in perfect harmony with the entire created world. They had shalom in the garden of Eden. But of course, in Genesis 3, they lost that. In Genesis Genesis 3, they chose to disobey God and they sinned. And all of a sudden, all of creation was spiraled into disharmony and disunity and shalom was lost. But this is 
what Jesus came 2,000 years ago to restore. God sent his own son into the world to bring about shalom once again. That Jesus would be the key to bringing back what was lost in Eden. That Jesus would become the key to restoring shalom between us and our God, between one another, and ultimately at the new creation between us and all of the created world. Now, during Jesus's earthly ministry, he announced that his peace had in fact come. Here's John 14, 27. Jesus says to his followers, and he says to us again this morning, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And then again in John 16, 33, Jesus says this, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Now, the first advent 2,000 years ago brought about Jesus' government of peace. It inaugurated it. It kicked it off. It got it started. And at the second advent or the second coming of Christ, he's going to bring his government of peace in its fullness. Let me explain that. Ever since the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus 2,000 years ago, Jesus' rule of peace has begun. Jesus has already started ruling and governing with peace. So 2,000 years ago, he established peace on earth. How so? Well, he established peace in three ways. Number one, Jesus established peace with God. Jesus established peace with God. Here's Romans 5.1. Paul writes, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through our faith in Jesus Christ, you have peace with God. You are no longer alienated from God. God is not angry with you. God's wrath is no longer kindled against you. There is no longer judgment waiting for you because Jesus took that for you on the cross 2,000 years ago. And for those of us who have put our faith in him, God's wrath is removed. And in its place, all you have is peace with God. There's no hostility there. Colossians 1, 19 and 20 says it this way. For in him, speaking of Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So family, through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus 2,000 years ago, Christ has made peace between God and man for all of those who would trust in him. Now, this reality deals with our sense of guilt and with our fear of death. Many people are going through their lives plagued by a sense of guilt for things that they have done. Somebody that they've hurt. Something that they've said. Something that they've done to somebody. And it's a crippling, overwhelming sense of guilt that they struggle to live with. I was watching Alone recently. Now this is the second reference in maybe as many weeks, so 
Now you're all thinking that all your pastor does is preach sermons and watch alone. And that's not exactly true. But I was watching alone and uh, season two, if you're wondering, and there's this lady on there. And I just saw this interesting scene that helps to explain what I'm saying. There was this woman and she had been in law enforcement and the military. And, you know, when you're alone with just your thoughts for weeks on end, what's interesting in this show is that a lot of things come bubbling up. People are dealing with trauma from the past or different experiences in their life. And she's talking into the camera and she goes back and explains this situation where uh, there was a, an active shooter in her town. She was law enforcement. And the call came over the radio that everybody needed to respond immediately. And she was telling the camera that basically she kind of froze. And she sat in her squad car and thought for a minute, what should I do? Should I go straight away? Or how should I respond to this? And eventually she decided, yes, I need to go. I'm a police officer. And she rushed over there. And when she got on the scene and got out of her vehicle, she could, uh, the, the active shooter was still doing their thing. And uh, somebody was bringing a young woman around the side. They were carrying her out to an ambulance. And she, was, she looked at this young woman and she just saw the wounds that she had and immediately know, knew she's not going to make it. The wounds are too severe. That, that poor girl is gone. And she went in and she did her job. And she was explaining that so many years later, she's still racked with guilt because of the thought that what if I would have responded instantly like I was trained to do? Perhaps I could have saved that young woman's life. She's just racked with guilt. And I was watching, I was just thinking, wow, like that's the way this works. Like you do something in your life. And for some of us, if we have nowhere to take that guilt, it is crippling and it can, it can care. You can carry that the rest of your life. And it is a burden that is difficult to bear. And yet Jesus came 2000 years ago to deal with all of our sin so that you and I don't have to live under the crushing weight of guilt anymore. That those things in Christ can now be forgiven and God is no longer going to judge us for the wrong things that we've done. Again, this also deals with our fear of death. How many people are concerned with death? Pretty much everybody. Nobody wants to die. And everybody asks themselves, what happens after I die? And many people live with a paralyzing fear of death. For those of us who are in Christ, whose sins have been forgiven, we no longer have to be ruled by that fear. We have peace with God so that when we die and we stand before him, it's not judgment coming down from an angry creator. It's love and peace and blessing coming from a father who is perfect in every way. Well, this all leads to the second kind of peace that Jesus ushered in 2,000 years ago. So, We talked about peace with God. This leads to peace within. Isaiah, later in his book in chapter 26, famously put it this way. In verse 3, Isaiah writes, You keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you, because he trusts in you. I wonder if any here this morning would like perfect peace. It's available for you in the Lord. Listen to the way the psalmist writes about it in Psalm 4.8. He says this, In peace, in shalom, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Rather than tossing and turning on his bed at night full of worry and fear and anxiety, he says, look, I can lay down on my bed in peace because of the Lord and because the Lord 
makes him dwell in safety. Famously in Philippians 4, 6, and 7, Paul could write this, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And he says, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So for those of us who are in Christ, what is available to us at the experiential level is peace within. And this deals with anxiety. This deals with worry. This deals about fear uh, for the future and what's going to happen and what's coming around the next turn and what's 2021 going to bring. This deals with all of that. Because for those of us that are in Christ, we understand that he is with us and his spirit is in us. And he's got our future secured and taken care of. And therefore, we don't have to be consumed with worry and anxiety. Finally, Jesus came to usher in peace with others. Peace with others. And I mean this in two different ways. First of all, Jesus came to usher in peace among his people, or you could call it the church. That because of what Christ did 2,000 years ago, that there would become a new people, a new family that would be multi-ethnic, multi-racial, multi-lingual, that would be made up of every tribe, tongue, and nation under heaven, and that within this new family that Jesus creates, that there would be peace and love and unity. This is what the church is supposed to have. Listen to this amazing passage in Ephesians chapter 2. Really quick, let me just say this. In Ephesians, Paul's writing to a church that is divided. There are Jewish Christians and there are non-Jewish Christians. And those differences culturally were creating massive rifts in the church. And Paul says, that's not the way it works now. Jesus has changed all this forever. And this is what he writes. He says, for he himself, speaking of Jesus, is our peace who has made us both, Jew and Gentile, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. That's what exists between people. We put ourselves in all these different groups and we have these dividing walls of hostility and you're not like us and you're not welcome here and Jesus comes and he destroys all of that through his life, death, and resurrection. He goes on to say, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to those who were far off and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Paul's saying, look, in Christ, now we all become God's children. There's no pecking order. There's no elite group. There's no better than. You look around our congregation. Every single person here who has put their faith in Jesus Christ is God's daughter or God's son. And that means that they are your brother or your sister. There are no grandchildren. There are no weird uncles. There are no... (laughs) Justin said there are some weird uncles. Touche, I'll give you that. 
We are one family in the church. Therefore, Paul could say in chapter 4 of Ephesians that we should live with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's how we should live. And so I want to say to you that if you have a problem with somebody else in the church, please seek peace. That's not what Christ has called us to. And the name of Christ and the glory of God is on the line when we allow there to be division and hostility and animosity between one another. That's not the way. Christ has called us to all love one another and seek unity and peace, recognizing that the only reason you're a part of the family is the same reason they're a part of the family. It's by grace, baby. That's it. You didn't earn it. You didn't earn it. You're no better than anyone else in the church. So Christ brings peace within the church. So there's peace among the people of God. And this one will be really quick. There's peace through the people of God. What I mean by that is not only are we supposed to have peace within the church, but you and I are supposed to be peacemakers that are bringing peace to the world in the name of Jesus. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 9, Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So friend, if you're a son of God, you're a daughter of God, then Jesus' assumption is that you will be a peacemaker. That you'll be somebody who's carrying the message of peace with God, the message of the gospel to the world. That you'll be somebody who's seeking to live at peace and harmony with others. This idea of Christ bringing peace with others deals with alienation, division, and friction among people. And maybe that's been your experience in your life. Friction, being alienated from people, being isolated, being lonely. Listen, it doesn't have to be that way. You could come to Christ and you could become part of his family, part of the church, where you are valued. I don't care how much money you have. I don't care where you've come from on planet earth. I don't care how smart you are, how educated you are or uneducated you are. I don't care if you're in shape or out of shape. I don't care if you're nine or you're 90. You can come here and you are valued and you are loved for no other reason than the fact that you are a precious child of God created in his image and purchased by his blood. So you belong here. And you'll be loved here in this church. So let's bring this to a close. At Christmas, we celebrate that the Prince of Peace has come. And we renew our trust in him and we draw his peace, draw on his peace every single day to sustain us going forward. We reflect that during this time, we don't have to be controlled by the same controlling influences that control non-Christians. So as you're journeying through Advent, we should be pausing, we should be slowing down right now. And we should be thinking, I don't have to be stuck in the crazy cycle that so many other people are stuck in. This has been a year marked by anxiety and worry and fear. But family, we don't have to be controlled by that. We are controlled by the Prince of Peace. Okay, the time of Isaiah's life has come and gone. That was 2,700 years ago. 
And the people of God then were being crippled by anxiety and panic and worry and fear of their circumstances. But I want to tell you, for those who kept their trust in the Lord, they have spent 2,700 years now in perfect shalom in the presence of God. And they're just getting started. And so for those of us who are tempted to be ruled by fear right now, and to resort to trying to take matters into our own hands and manage and control everything, don't do it. 2021 is going to come real quick. And then 2031 and 41 and 61. And before we can blink, we're all going to be dead. Physically. But for those of us who have our faith in Christ, we're going to be more alive than we've ever been. And all we will know will be shalom forevermore. So we need to renew our hope and our trust and our faith in the Prince of Peace and not, again, revert to the controlling influences of the world. But as we're navigating right now, this life, there's nothing wrong with us embracing the tension that we feel, the longing that we feel. Last week, we talked about how biblical hope is a a tension and an expectation. And so there is a tension where we go, well, Jesus came and he established peace and yet sometimes I toss and turn on my bed. I, I can't seem to shut it off. What's going on here? Or, or how come I still have this conflict with my spouse or with my mother or with my friend? Like why, where's the, the peace? I don't, I don't get it. Listen, Advent is, yes, looking back and celebrating the first coming, but it's also looking forward to the second coming of Christ and living patiently in this period of tension where we say, yes, I have God's peace, and yet it's not perfected yet. There's still missing elements to it, and we need to embrace that because it causes us to look forward with eager anticipation at the second coming. And this is what I meant when I said that at Christ's second advent, he'll bring his government of peace in fullness. Just look again quickly at verse 7, where he says, Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Christ's government of peace has been expanding for the last 2,000 years onto every continent now and to almost every single nation on earth through the preaching of the gospel, people being reconciled to God and to one another. And it's going to continue to spread outward on and on until the return of Christ where he ushers in his perfect government and his eternal kingdom. And notice that his government will be established and upheld in verse 7 with justice and with righteousness. Did you know that those are the ingredients to having peace, justice, and righteousness. That's the reason we can't have perfect peace until Christ comes back. Because in order to have perfect peace, you have to have perfect justice where there is fairness for every single person and you need to have righteousness. Our problem on planet earth is that none of us are perfectly righteous. And so for all of our efforts to try to have relational harmony, to have global peace, we cannot do it because we are sinners. We are people who lie, who cheat, who steal, who do violence, who divide, who manipulate, 
who oppress. This is what people do. And so we, like the kingdom of Judah 2,700 years ago, would be wise to put our hope and our trust not in political parties, not in wealth, not in human goodness or scientific progress or medical technology, but in the Lord and the Messiah that he sent. The psalmist put it this way, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. The story of Christmas is not just a cute story about a baby in a manger. It is God's humble, counterintuitive answer to all of the world's problems. All of the world's problems. To many, it seems weak, feeble, perhaps too small to shoulder the weight of the world's problems. And therefore, they look at the story of Christmas and the message of the gospel and they say, that's foolishness. But to those who have eyes to see it, Family, it is the wisdom of God. And I wonder this morning, do you have eyes to see it? Has God opened the eyes of your heart to see that through the sending of this baby in a manger 2,000 years ago, this was God's answer to all of the world's problems? Do you long for peace today? Are you done searching for it in every place other than at its source, the very prince of peace? A friend, today you can experience his peace and you can receive the greatest Christmas present you will ever, ever get. How so? By turning from or repenting of your attempts to find life, love, meaning, purpose, peace in some lesser God and instead by looking to the one true God today. And I hope you'll do that. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you today for your amazing love for your creation. A love that was put on full display 2,000 years ago on Calvary's cross where your one and only son who is fully God but who became man so that he could live the life that we could not live and fulfill all righteousness on our behalf, and then he willingly died in our place on that cross, absorbing the wrath of God, absorbing what all of us deserved for the wrong things that we have done to one another. Jesus took it in our place. And all of that was done because you love us, because you were not willing that we should perish even though we deserved it. And so even though we created the problem, you brought forth the solution. So this morning, we rejoice in the good news of the gospel. We rehearse this timeless story once again, and we never tire of it. And Lord, we pray that you would continue to stir up our love and our affection for you. And Lord, we pray that you would grant to us your peace. And we ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.